Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. Um, this is a special episode. We have uh, Dr. Eugene Schlesinger, um, and you go by Gene. And Gene is joining us today to have a discussion on a theologian whom we've devoted a couple other episodes to in the past, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And as we discussed on those shows, Schleiermacher's name is widely known in theological circles, but uh, the interest there in him is perhaps more of a in, in a subculture, or at least though the people who seek to understand him and his thought are really a subculture, despite that arguable, uh, arguably Schleiermacher's strong influence on wider culture and theology in a ways that affect us all, even if his name is obscure and even if we reject all of his theology, he's nevertheless has cast his shadow on all subsequent theology since. Um, and as one of his strongest critics, Karl Barth, once said, I believe something along these lines, I'll have to source it. Uh, but I think he compared Schleiermacher to a prism through which all the light passes through. Um, and so we're bringing Gene on in a similar fashion to how we brought uh, Jacqueline Mourinha and Daniel Peterson in our previous episodes on Schleiermacher to discuss some central elements of Schleiermacher and in what ways he may be of interest to theology readers. So Gene is going to give us an understanding of Schleiermacher's ecclesiology or the understanding of the church uh, today, amongst other things. So ecclesiology is actually one of his strong interests. He holds a PhD from Marquette uh, University where he wrote a dissertation on ecclesiology as it relates to liturgy and mission. And he's currently a lecturer at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California, and has taught courses in the past at Marquette and Trinity School for Ministry and the Schoethouse Theological Seminary. Uh, he's also the author of the book, Sacrificing the Church, Mass, Mission, and Ecumenism, which we will provide a link for in the show notes. Uh, Dean also has Strong interests in the Catholic theologian Henry D. Lubach, and currently has another book underway on him, from what I understand. So, uh, which we thought may be a good opener. So, Gene, thanks for being on. Maybe to give us a sense of yourself and to be and to uh, for us to better know you. I know you, of course, because we uh, our paths briefly crossed. Uh, for our listeners, Gene was, um, I guess, when you were teaching at Marquette. Or at one of the places in the Milwaukee area. Yeah, either. I think okay, you were good. You were attending uh, Trinity Episcopal Church in Wauwatosa, uh, and that's where we briefly knew each other. So, yeah, when my my seminary for was um, uh, when it fully relocated uh, to a Chicago campus. I had two campuses that did that in my last year's seminary, and so I was moved, and I. Uh, uh, did my field education in Milwaukee area in my last year's seminary. And so that's where Gene and I actually know each other from that. But, um, but yeah, to give us a sense of yourself and maybe for um, our listeners to kind of get to know you, uh, your up, uh, upcoming book seems to me to be the fruit bore from long-held interests. And so you want to talk a little bit about this book and how it relates to your work and study up to this point? Sure. Yeah, I've for the last, I don't know, decade, I guess, I've been occupied with questions of what is the church and why is the church and what is the church supposed to be doing and so on and so forth. And uh, particularly questions of how uh, the church's liturgical and sacramental life relates to 
all the other stuff it's supposed to be doing. And so that very naturally led me uh, to fairly deep engagement with the Catholic theological tradition um, and studying at a, a Jesuit university for my PhD also uh, helped with that. And, you know, along the way, I you know, became enamored with uh, the works of Henri de Lubac, um, who, if you don't know, uh, was sort of instrumental in this movement of ressourcement uh, in the early 20th century that sort of paved the way for Vatican II uh, mm-hmm. within uh, the, the the Catholic uh, Church. I know we're, we're supposed to be talking Protestant history. That's all right. Here, but, uh, you know, forgive <laughs> we'll me. We'll get into know, that. <laughs> the, the indulgence. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, so de Lubach, among other things, uh, recovers uh, the deep and intrinsic relationship between the Eucharist and the church. Mm-hmm. And that was the area of his thought that sort of initially captivated me. Uh, but along the way, I came to to see in his his thought this persistent theme of salvation by the incarnate Christ and you know his death and resurrection, leading to sharing in the life of God the Trinity. Uh, This was just replete in in his major works, and it seemed like no one was talking about it. And I want, uh, surprisingly so, Uh, you know, Delubac gets talked about a lot, but that's a theme that remains pretty underdeveloped. And so I just started, you know, pulling the thread and it eventually uh, spun out into uh, this book project that I've been working on for the last several years. Um, and which will be forthcoming uh, with the University of Notre Dame Press, uh, tentatively called Mysterium Crucis, uh, the Soteriological Axis of Henri de Lubac's Theology. And what the work winds up doing is tracing this theme of incorporation into the Trinity through the incarnate Christ uh, in the major areas of de Lubac's thought. And he, he dipped his pen into a lot of different wells. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the fascinating things that I discovered along the way is that while there's not a lot of talk about this theme in English, uh, the, the French have been talking about it for a number of years. And so okay. uh, I sort of get to delve into that French scholarship and, and bring it into the English speaking conversation. And, uh, one of the sort of central contributions uh, that hopefully this this does is it recovers the the sense of de Lubac as a mystical theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he writes about how uh, his his entire theological project is animated by uh, this this vision of of mysticism, uh, which is is appropriate for. Uh, us as we as we talk about Schleiermacher, because that sort of interior mystical turn is is also important for him. Right. My uh, brief encounter with um, sorry, there was some weird noise there for a second. Um, my brief and thanks for sharing that because I I know um it's, I've it's been a while since I've read uh, De Lubac. I know um when I read I had to read some excerpts from both 
uh, I think Supernatural and Medieval Exegesis. I don't know if those were books of his. Um, they were from like, a, I think the modern theologian reader really is where I, I read those in a, in a graduate course I took. Um, and I remember uh, being fascinated with um, his, his work on medieval exegesis. It seemed like he was trying to uh, rescue um, a sense of how it was, how it, you know, was a, how it's a helpful way of perhaps uh, exegeting or reading scripture. Um, when I, and when I read it, um, of course, I recognized De Lubac being a Catholic theologian has some, obviously would have significant differences from Protestant theology um, and, you know, for sure the reformers, but um, at least in one sense, uh, in essence, that I, I've had a hard time seeing where the reformers would differ from him in some things, at least in the basic sense that it seemed for him and for the reformers that Christ emerges to the believer um, be, through faith in the reading of scripture. Um, now, I know that's put, yeah. phrased in yeah, different very much so. for Protestant reformer versus de Lubeck, but um, that basically the idea of the scripture carrying Christ to you I guess through the Holy spirit is something it's kind of a parallel I saw. And so um, I know the reformers fear was that there was a certain enablement of abuse in the church of their day because of allegorical reading, reading and whatnot, um, perhaps being taken to uh, fantastical or dubious directions. But, um, but I think uh, uh, Dave Lubeck is, um, you know, he's working from, he's discerning like a spiritual dimension of the content of scriptures. Um, which in itself is not the type of eisegesis that I think the reformers would have feared. At least that was kind of the sense I got from it. So, um, yeah, I think that's accurate. Uh, you know, de Lubac is himself very critical of some of the like excesses of allegorical exegesis. Uh, but, and what he wants to do is retrieve the idea that at its heart to engage in a, a properly allegorical reading of scripture, to engage in spiritual exegesis, is the same thing as to be converted to Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and so like, that's a, that's a theology of scripture that ought to warm the heart of, you know, the staunchest Protestant, mm -hmm. uh, because sure. it, at the end of the day, like that's, that's what it's all about is, is about passing over into Christ through engagement with, with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, and yes, we are a, you know, Protestant history, but uh, I brought John because I know you. Um, in, in relation to this, you mentioned uh, that from De Lubac, we can kind of go into Schleiermacher uh, because of the the broader mystical disposition. I guess we see in both. But um, I remember reading from some of your work on Schleiermacher that emphasized his understanding of the church as really an inseparable part of his whole theological structure and perhaps an overlooked part, um, oddly enough. Um, kind of like with De Lubach, um, where you were really working on fresh ground as much as there's been quite a bit of scholarship on De Lubach, but it might have been not in English. Uh, kind of just kind of the same situation with Schleiermacher. Um, and of course, many scholars would point out uh, that there's a social element to Schleiermacher's theology, but you were the first person I really read from that had written a work exclusively devoted to this aspect. And um, so first off, I'm curious, though, why 
Schleiermacher. I mean, knowing your mix of interests, say Lubach, you're even drawn a lot toward, really more toward modern Catholic theology, I, I think I could fairly say. When did you become interested in Schleiermacher and what led you to that and write something on him? Yeah, so I, I initially engaged with Schleiermacher uh, as sort of a step towards putting the pieces together for what was going to become my my dissertation. Um, I don't think he winds up showing up in the dissertation at all, but he okay. he certainly helped give me some important orientation. So as I'm engaging in this project in ecclesiology, and as I'm looking at the relationship between liturgy and mission in the life of the church, uh, some of my important interlocutors for that project were, um, you know, some sort of like radical Protestant uh, types, uh, more, more in like the Bardian strain, okay. um, sort of the apocalyptic Bardians. And I wanted to have a strong sense of that sort of like intellectual genealogy. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, in order to understand Bart, uh, in order to, you know, understand, I mean, really any, any Protestant theology that was written after Schleiermacher, sure. you need to understand Schleiermacher. And what I found as I uh, started engaging with him was uh, just how much continuity there, there is early modern theology, both Catholic and Protestant. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's, he's very, very much, very much a Protestant figure, but, um, you know, as, as I've sort of engaged with like early 20th century Catholic uh, theology, which you know, ties in with the Dulubach stuff as well, um, the sort of stuff that Schleiermacher was up to um, sort of sets the stage for so many of the developments that that are my primary focus. And so having, having a strong sense of what he was doing and uh, what was motivating him as he did it uh, has, has helped me to have a better understanding of these early modern figures and then the folks who are downstream from them, yeah. including us. Well, perhaps, and that's um, your, your, your story, your, your uh, the example from your own kind of uh, journey of study as it were um that's it could be kind of a it's, it's very telling because it, sh- it shows that like how anyone who tries to research um anything theological of the last you know couple hundred years uh, will come uh in contact with schleiermacher at some point in some form and so he's really worth worth studying and in, in for that reason and i own this podcast we we tend to jump around topics depending on the episode where we have really kind of a uh, an affinity for reformation era and reformation figures but and so as i saw some list, so, some listeners probably like why are these flyer episodes appear here and there like well that's the reason you know because he's significant um mm-hmm. so for our listeners we've we've been over in the past couple episodes um kind of the feeling of absolute dependence, which is the central principle of Schleiermacher's and his theology. But I guess you could say even the central principle of what you could call his philosophy of religion. What is, 
so what is, how would you define the feeling and how does this translate into a, into the social realm for his, his thought? Yeah. Well, and, and this is one of those areas where Schleiermacher kind of surprised me uh, Mm -hmm. because I, I was, I was going to him, you know, somewhat grudgingly because I'd, you know, my, my prior, uh, theological formation had sort of dealt in caricatures of Schleiermacher as, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of like, you know, the father of liberal Protestantism, yada, yada, yada. You, you mainly read people who are reacting against him. Um, and it's always helpful to actually read the person who's um, spurring the, the reactions on because uh, what's being reacted against isn't always necessarily what uh, the person's about. And so this, this is a case where, where Schleiermacher kind of surprised me because, you know, you, you hear someone who's like basing his theology on like our, our feelings and, and, you know, that, that can seem like it's going to be this really like saccharine, squishy, there's no there, there Subjective. sort of approach. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you, you, I, I went into it sort of assuming that that was going to be a real weak point of his. But uh, what he's doing with this notion of feeling is uh, actually pretty pretty radical in a in a good sense. Um, namely, so it the feeling the gefühl is like at the very base of who we are and. As, as human beings, as, as, you know, creatures with, with subjectivity, um, yeah, feeling is like that level beneath any other faculties or operations or whatever else we want to call them. And so when he talks about feeling, uh, he's not talking about our emotions, uh, which is again, what you'd sort of assume, what I assumed going into it, but, but rather this like existential core Mm-hmm. of of who we are that undergirds everything else and so to be to to have feeling as the basis of our religious consciousness and you know everything else that flows from that is is not to render it trivial or superficial but rather to say that um it's at the very core of who we are uh, that this religious consciousness uh, is is an existential matter uh, that implicates every aspect of us as uh, human creatures, and so we got you know that piece, and and to to take that and parse it as a feeling of absolute dependence uh, is a radical affirmation that we are creatures, mm-hmm. uh, that that we know that we're not the absolute. Uh, we we know that we're not God, but we also know that we are radically dependent. Uh, and, you know, so from this sense, we we intuit that there there is something absolute on whom or on, I guess, at this point, we should still say on which uh, we we are radically dependent. And. And whatever that is, uh, what is what we mean by God? Mm-hmm. And then from there we can get the the whom, uh, right? 
right, right. rather than the, just the witch. Um, but in, in many ways, it, it parallels, you know, Thomas Aquinas's five ways, each of mm-hmm. which sets up this idea of like everything depends on something else. Um, and that on which everything depends is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that was kind of my, you know, it's it funny when I went to graduate study, Schleiermacher was one of the first people I, I studied. And um, uh, I, I, I didn't even get to really reading um, either secondary or primary works wise uh, people like Augustine or Aquinas, but that would come in soon time. But when I even started to read them, I noticed it, there was parallels, at least in epistemic parallels to some degree, because throughout the great tradition, um, theologians have wrestled with um, our knowledge of God, right? And can we, how, to what extent do we know God in his essence? Um, you know, there's the idea of, uh, is it something being so is it something outside herself causing us to um, drawing um, us towards itself? Um, so, so that was always um, that, that that theme like reoccurs and re, like recurs and recurs. And so um, I guess you know I don't 100% endorse the, the Schleiermacher um, system. I guess I mean I uh, you know I, I, I there's I think that's probably uh, there's probably some there's probably some other areas though that I would take uh, bigger issue with as far as uh, some that we'll get into, but I do think that the feeling of absolute in, of independence <laughs> dependence is, is, is what really drew uh, me in. I think it was a 19th century theologians class and we got on, you know, we were going through the major people and we really get, he was really the first. And that really, I thought was, was fascinating, but you say, so this translates into a social realm um, becoming like a communal piety. Uh, you talk about kind of something that um, this feeling is something, yeah, initially inward, but then it, 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 it can't help itself but to become outward. And that's what we call, I guess, religious phenomenon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so, because, again, because of this sort of and creatures, whatever you want to call us, that we are, you know, our, our lives are bound together. And so something that implicates us at our deepest levels of interiority is going to be externalized. Uh, we, we it, it doesn't simply, interiority doesn't simply remain interior. Uh, it gets mm-hmm. externalized. Uh, we, uh, and so as we express these interior states to one another, uh, you know, linguistically or, or what have you, um, communities like coalesce around shared meaning, shared experience. Uh, and with that sort of social communal dimension of human beings, you have like the the, the seeds of, of what, uh, when we pivot from philosophy to theology, is going to be an ecclesiology, uh, because ecclesiology is essentially the, the, the community that forms around Christian meaning. Right. Okay, yes. Yeah, so um, now, kind of pivoting to, uh, I guess, uh, shifting gears a little bit, but I know this will, will, will connect back to his ecclesiology. Um, there's a certain, there's a kind of Christocentrism that is very central to 
um, Schleiermacher's thought. I guess basically what is Schleiermacher's many ways this could be answered, I guess, but what is his, what is his understanding of, of Jesus? Cause I mean, so much opinions that we've, so many opinions that we will form out of theologians when we read them is I think connected to their understanding of Jesus. And I think this is, you know, of course, understandable because Jesus is obviously central to um, any Christian theology, but his, his, you know, his nature, his work is understood in different ways amongst uh, different theologians. You know how Christology is related to the feeling. Um, how is this and how does this relate to what Schleiermacher uh, believes about Jesus. Sure. Well, to begin with, Jesus is like at the basis of every single theological affirmation for Schleiermacher. And this is something that you'd, you know, sort of implicitly noted uh, a moment ago as you were setting up the question, but it's, it's like a, a really explicitly defined and rigorously maintained principle for him that if you're doing theology, if you're doing Christian theology, then anything you say needs to have its derivation from Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if it doesn't, then uh, whatever you're doing isn't properly speaking mm -hmm. Christian theology. Uh, and so, you know, you know, at, at, at sort of a first level, Jesus is like the fundamental basis for for all Christian theologizing, uh, which is, you know, a pretty rad uh, statement to be making. Um, the second piece of that, you know, like that's sort of like a very formal, like a rule for, for Christian God talk, which is, is good enough. But in terms of like the material content of like, okay, who do you say that Jesus is Schleiermacher? Um, for, for him, Jesus is that human being who, whose God consciousness, whose um, that feeling of absolute dependence is so perfectly realized uh, as to essentially be, you know, a a full union with God, mm -hmm. um, and. You know, there's some ambiguity about precisely how that works, in part because Schleiermacher found that, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, didn't really contribute that much to Christian piety, and so he didn't really have much time for it. And so that raises the question, how can we talk, what does it mean to talk about Jesus as united with God, uh, apart from a doctrine of the Trinity, whereby we can say, like, okay, he is God. Uh, but also not the Father or the Holy Spirit or whatever. So there's a bit of ambiguity there, I think. But uh, essentially, this this feeling of absolute dependence is so perfectly realized in Jesus that you know, in in a manner of speaking, we we can refer to him as God uh, mm -hmm. because that union is is just so um, like the openness to God is so perfect as to uh, become a, a relation of identity even. And what Jesus then does is he lives this God consciousness in, in community with, you know, first is you know, sort of inner, inner circle of disciples um, in such a way as to 
disseminate it to them as well. Well, uh, mm -hmm. so that, you know, as he, as he, you know, sort of enters into uh, an apprenticeship relationship with them, uh, they, they themselves come to appropriate this God consciousness. And it's sort of echoes of Philippians chapter two, having this mind in ourselves, which was first in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so through this passing of his unique God consciousness on to uh, the the disciples, uh, we get, again, the, the core of the Christian community, the core of the church. And then, you know, from that core, that God consciousness spreads through um, charisma, through sort of the, the communication of this, you know, unique revelation of God consciousness um that you know again spreads through these communal um channels okay and so it, it spreads so kind of jesus is also like you know the nucleus of the church sure so it kind of it spreads across <clears throat> space and time it's, it spreads through the ages and so when we're speaking of the church uh today it, it bears the influence in that way Okay. Yeah. Um, I think there is a kind of a slight delay. Yeah, the, the church maybe, is maybe that when, community that. Yeah, I think there's a slight delay in our responses. I think when it uploads, it may uh, clean that up. We will see. But yeah, I. But yeah, um, I. Sorry, I cut you off. I know you heard me now to my my response to that. <laughs> yeah. No worries. No worries. Um, yeah. And we'll, this can all be uh, fixed in, in post-production. Um, yeah. um, um, so on kind of that note, um, is it fair to say that I know like the, um, so Schleiermacher comes from the reformed tradition, even though of course he um, has a, a pretty formative part of his life in a kind of a Moravian brethren community. Um, is it, and I know, but going with the reform tradition, I know kind of the classic slogan that sums up, you know, sometimes people say it jokingly, but it sums up reformed thought is that the finite cannot contain um, the infinite. And I kind of, I noticed in my own study of Schleiermacher and in, a lot of what you talked about with um with uh basically that everything in schleiermacher's theology works through natural means is it fair to say that for schleiermacher in a way it's almost like an extreme version of the finite i don't want to say extreme i don't mean to say that experientially but uh is it like a strong version of the finite contains the infinite because what I might mean by that is the infinite is experienced through the finite for Schleiermacher, right? Through the, through the natural means. Um, like you, what you say is the inescapable linguistic character that piety will take on. I mean, it takes on language. It, it comes into this natural world and, um, it, would that be a fair way to 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 uh, describe Schleiermacher's theology? Yeah, you know, 
in a lot of ways, I think it might be, you know, he's, he's got this really rigorous commitment to a non-interventionist uh, account of providence. Sure. So yeah. he has a really strong doctrine of providence such that, uh, you know, everything that happens happens because of the singular divine decree um, and so on. But like, but once, you know, the, the decree works itself out throughout all of all of time and is not in need of any, you know, fresh interventions. Uh, there's no need for miracles. In fact, miracles would upset the sort of, you know, harmonious order of the universe from which we derive our sense of absolute dependence and so would destroy Christian piety. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he's kind of got everything expressed in terms of, but yeah, these secondary causes, uh, natural causes. And so, um, like the, the finite is the bearer of the infinite. Mm -hmm. And I, and that literally clicked yeah. today. I never thought of it in those terms. Cause I always so knew that in, in a very much another sense, that's the distinction a, a lot of people will say between reformed and, and Lutheran. And that ties into their understandings of the Eucharist that Jesus can corporeally, you know, all places at once versus, um, you know, so I know the reformed tradition, uh, classically has a very, an idea of providence that, uh, is very transcendent on one end and of course would be interventionist, but of course, but this kind of leads me to my question. I, I never really gave, I didn't throw hardball questions at, um, our two other Schleiermacher guests. Um, and that's not something I, I like particularly just love doing on the show. Cause I mean, <laughs> but I mean, in your own kind of, I mean, is this something you as a theologian, um, that I know is committed to the, to the tradition, is that something that troubles you as far as like the, the non-interventionist concept of providence? Um, and I know Schleiermacher tries to square that with miracles, which sometimes he seems ambiguous on. And sometimes he just, uh, as you say, he, there's no room for it in his, in his, in his, um, in his ideas or in his theology. So, um, is, I don't know. Is that something you struggle with, kind of the this non-interventionist way? When, when so much of biblical languages or biblical biblical narrative, um, at least on the surface, is seems very interventionist. Uh, Jesus jumps in. God intervenes in our life in our history. You know, I, I, sorry, I rambled on there, but right. No, no. I mean, that's yeah. So. And, you know, Schleiermacher has, you know, sort of a, a way of accounting for all that, of course, you know, like all of these, you know, various things are, are you know, unfoldings of this singular decree. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, he, he sees God as sort of intervening, but God intervenes by like, intervenes by creating and then completing the creation through, through, through Christ. But uh, to to your point, as as the theologian that I am, and not just you know someone who read Schleiermacher and found him helpful, um, I appreciate the instincts that he has there in terms of this sort of non-interventionist uh, account of God, because you know so much of the 
current bifurcation between like science and faith and things mm-hmm. like that sure. uh, stems from these these like really inadequate understandings of divine providence and divine intervention mm-hmm. and things like miracles. Um, so I get what he's coming from, and I I also tend to view the order of the universe as you know intelligible Mm -hmm. um on its own terms you know it doesn't need miraculous interventions to keep it going or whatever um but i'm i'm much more of a thomist than i am a schleier makarian um which is to say at all um right and i you know i think that you know Following, you know, the the sort of other commitments that I have, like, you know, miracles are, well, I, I think miracles can occur, but, you know, miracles are specifically linked to, you know, the, um, they're an aspect of divine providence. Um, if there's not this, you know, sort of revelatory element to them, if, if God is not trying to, mm-hmm. if not, not just trying, but, you know, succeeding in communicating something like miracles are essentially just, I mean, a miracle would be indistinguishable from a really unlikely thing unless, um, unless there's, you know, that divine providential uh, aspect of it the the universe is you know a matter of statistical norms and it's governed by schemes of probability uh and so unlikely things happen all the time just because something's unlikely doesn't mean it's a miracle sure. um the the miraculous has to do with um the communicated divine intentionality that accompanies the unlikely thing mm-hmm yeah, and um, I think, well, in Schleier markets, it's also like we've had so much um, scientific advancement since um, that time. And so, I mean, we're very much living, we, we live in kind of a four-dimensional sen- sense of what science is um, and not so much the crass Newtonian um, sense. I do think like when I read him, I, I feel like he's trying to, he's trying to, Starting with speeches on religion, he's always he's trying to persuade. He is trying to, in a to an extent, sell religion to people who are up on the sciences, so to speak, at least in that his contemporary time. And so, but you know, I think to Schleiermacher's credit, like what you said, like a miracle always points to something else. Like you talk about the revelatory element. Like, and I know when when. A lot of times, the Schleiermacher addresses miracles. I think the reason, usually, it came off to me that he wasn't always flat out rejecting them, but he was kind of, they had a secondary importance to him. And I think a lot of times the secondary importance was due to something good rather than bad. I think if, if it was due to the fact that he wants to satisfy scientific understanding, I don't think that would be a good reason. But I, what he usually it's secondary because it's pointing back to something 
something else, something that, that, that the miracles were supposed to, the reason why Jesus did the healings. And I think any Christian would agree that like, whenever Jesus goes around and heals someone or performs any of his other miracles, it's always for a reason, right? And it's, it's for a godly reason. And it's for a, um, it's for, I guess, uh, it's for really overturning evil and demonstrating that God reigns and not Satan. And it's helping people, right? It's restoring people as a restorative thing, which is, it's, which is ties into redemption. Um, and so it seemed to me like Samaka was, was arguing for the dignity of that versus miracles for their own sake. Um, you know, I do, I mean, I, I myself, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm what you'd call a, a biblical maximalist in the sense of when I read like gospel narratives of these miracles, I like, I do believe if you were to have a video camera 2000 years ago, you would have seen Jesus actually, uh, divide making bread multiplying <laughs> but but yeah but that's not like the that's not what they're for in and of themselves the miracles i guess if that makes sense but um yeah yeah precisely and 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 without that what they're there for then it's just any other unlikely thing right right you know it, unusual things happen all the time though and i think but you know to your point like schleiermacher is working with you know an understanding of science that you know, has by and large been been left behind because, you know, science is a self-correcting discipline. Um, and yeah, I, it would be interesting to see where he would come down on this today. Mm -hmm. You know, now that, you know, we, we understand scientific laws, not so much as like, you know, these sort of rigid Newtonian laws, but rather as like regular and predictable schemes of probability, mm -hmm. like what usually happens, but not, not, you know, rigid, immutable, eternal principles or whatever. Right. Um, the, our, our understanding of the natural world is rather different. And, you know, perhaps he'd have a bit more, I mean, yeah, it would just be interesting to see what he makes of, uh, yeah. you know, things that disrupt um, those, those predictable schemes. Um, mm -hmm. because like the science allows for things to disrupt the predictable schemes. Now, uh, that's not the same as it being a miracle, but like, there's no reason to say that, you know, a really improbable thing would never happen. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, basic, so, um, God amongst, uh, people historically is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, like you said, the, uh, the, I guess the God consciousness that is, uh, left with, um, his followers, uh, carries on, uh, through today. And it's, um, I think in the, in the way you kind of describe his theology, it's like, that's really where the church, the necessity of the church comes in because, the role of the church is um, a mediator, um, giving us access to Christ um, today. And and I and I when I was like reading this, kind of my some my Protestant alarms were kind of going off in a way because it's like you know, um, <laughs> is the church the mediator? Do we have you know the, the the old question of do we have direct access to 
Christ? What is the proper role of the church in that? And um, do do you think, um, I don't think there's an intentional betrayal of the Reformation principle, but has there been, do you know if there's been critiques of Schleiermacher for that? I mean, do they see him as kind of, um, and again, I mean, I guess there's not been a lot of works devoted solely to his ecclesiology. I mean, yours is one of the few I've read. I mean, literally the only one, I think. Um, and But has that been, uh, has there been critiques of Schleiermacher along those lines, do you know? Or? You know, I, I don't know offhand. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, I think, you know, the other question to ask, you know, against that, you know, do we have direct access to God? And, you know, in part, I want to say yes, but like, do we have direct access to anything? Yeah, what do you mean? Every, everything is, yeah, everything is mediated in some way mm-hmm. or another. Um, right. You know, what even 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 just like the the mediation of reality to us by our senses, like mm-hmm. it, you know, every everything is mediated in some some respect. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, what what do we mean when we say that something is mediating? Mm-hmm. You know, like so the the church is not the foundation of anyone's relationship with god mm-hmm. you know that that is you know the god man um jesus but in sort of a, a softer sense in, in the same way that everything is mediated eventually somehow then yeah the the church does is is the mediator of this relationship because it, it comes to us through the church. No one, no one learns about Jesus in a complete vacuum. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there, there's no like direct implantation of divine ideas into our minds. We, we hear of Jesus through the church's proclamation. Right. Um, and that's, that's a mediation of sorts. Right. You know, not the kind of mediation that the Protestants were worried about, but still a mediation. Right. Well, and I think it even to the like the, the properly understood, I think like even the Protestant thought going back to the reformers, at least the reformers held this, maybe not the radical later reformers, but um, the church was um, indispensable. I mean, the church was um, not the mediator in the sense that um, it was like an, an immutable infallible thing between you and God, but um it's it is what happens um through through the i mean the, the word might be the the norm the norming norm for um um for faith but uh that is as you said that comes through the life of the church and of course my dog's barking right now let me uh let me put her out <laughs> um i lost my train of thought on that but um but yeah i and so but and getting back to the um, the uh, communal piety, God consciousness is concept. Like you said, Jesus has the fullest um, the fullest of, and that's something basically where the church now is to, I guess, progress and grow and um, in its own God, not its own God consciousness, but in the God consciousness, how does this relate to kind of the redemptive scheme in Schleiermacher's ecclesiology? Um, cause I, I know you kind of closed off your, that your work that you did on Schleiermacher's ecclesiology, that it ultimately points to 
uh, redemption and creation. Right. And, and so this kind of resumes some themes that we were talking about earlier with this idea of like the singular divine decree. Um, so for, for Schleiermacher, it's not as if first God decides to create and then like, oh, shoot, we messed up. Uh, now God needs to redeem us. And so Jesus shows up to do that. Uh, rather, um, the redemption in, in Schleiermacher is the completion of creation and is included in the original determination to create. And, you know, I, I'd be interested to go back and look whether he engaged at all with the, uh, you know, Franciscan versus Dominican question of whether, uh, the word would have become incarnate, whether or not we had sinned. Um, but he, he's essentially offering a, a version of the Franciscan position here, which is that like it was always the intention of God that the word would become flesh and that we would thereby be united to God. And that this isn't just plan B because sin happened. Um, the, the, the culmination of the decision to create is our being brought into union with God through the through our own appropriation of the unique God consciousness of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, you know, redemption for Schleiermacher is, as you would imagine, a matter of our own interiority. Uh, it's it's a, a, a coming from a, you know, position of being less than fully authentic uh, in terms of our, you know, we are always absolutely dependent upon God, uh, but that that reality is not always authentically realized in our consciousness. And, um, and therein is the essence of what we would call sin theologically, this, this alienation from God, from our absolute source. And the redemption is the restoration of that proper creaturely relationship with God, which occurs through, you know, the, the exemplaricity uh, of, of Jesus's singular God consciousness. Um, and, and, you know, this has echoes in elsewhere in the tradition, but essentially the idea of us being brought from a state of enmity or alienation to God into a state of friendship with God, uh, having our, having our um our feeling of absolute dependence be be restored in its integral authenticity and and that is essentially the purpose of creation as well you know not not just a, a rescue operation that happened um you know because we you know dropped the ball or whatever um so kind of now going forward into your later work, um, it seems like after encountering uh, Schleiermacher and really um, focusing on his ecclesiology and um, how did this really inform some of your later work? Um, maybe does it tie into De Lubac at all? 
Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think there, there are kind of two areas in my current work that I see as really um, taking some of that Schleiermacherian torch and carrying it forward, um, not always in explicit ways and not always necessarily in ways that uh, the, the sources with whom I'm engaged now, you know, they, they may not have thought they were, you know, working in the, the Schleiermacher vein, but uh, de Lubach, I mentioned earlier his, his account of mysticism, and he, he's operating with this uh, tripartite anthropology that he gets from Paul, especially um, at the end of the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, where uh, he talks about us as body, uh, soul, and spirit. And so he's got, you know, the, uh, the you know, those, those three. And, and he devotes substantial uh, attention or he, he gives substantial attention to this idea of spirit. And for him, spirit is, uh, he calls it the, the site of mysticism. And he understands spirit in a way that really interestingly parallels Schleiermacher's account of feeling. Uh, because spirit is, it's not the intelligence, it's not the will, it's not any operation we might undertake or any faculty that we might have, but rather it's like our, at the fundamental existential base of who we are, undergirding and making possible all of our other uh, operations, much like feeling with Schleiermacher. And for de Lubach, uh, spirit is like fundamentally this this drive, this being drawn towards God, towards union with God. Uh, and so uh, we have at the core of our being, according to de Lubach, esprit, spirit, um, which, which is that place wherein we are drawn to and encounter and receive and are incorporated into God. And in really fascinating ways that that parallels what Schleiermacher is up to with with feeling as as something that also undergirds everything we are and do. It's prior to it and is also fundamentally the place where we meet God. Um, and so, you know, that sort of early modern theology thing um, carries over there. Uh, so that's that's one way that I see this. Um, should, should we pause there for a second or? Uh, no, I mean, it, it all sounds fascinating. I mean, I myself am not too well read on De Lubach, but um, other than those couple of works I read from, uh, but I do think um, that uh, it's worth exploring personally, personally find that very interesting. Um, and my dog's still whining a little bit. I think there's dogs outside that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, bothering here. That's all right. Well, uh, they're all just well, expressing their interior state they're for yes um, um so but yeah i do remember de lubach talking about uh kind of the natural desire um which he yeah. used the term spirit for i think that ties into your kind of the tripartite thing that you talked about um and that uh it's you know inherent in every finite being and um and that it's it's disposition i guess if, it, if it, it's meant for god it's meant uh, to be, it's meant for God. It's, it's, uh, it is drawn to God and attracted by God. I do very much remember that being a part of, uh, a big key, um, concept in De Lubach's writing. And so, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I, I do kind of see, I very much see the parallel you draw with that, 
with yeah. uh, the feeling of absolute uh, dependence, right? Um, mm -hmm. Wow. I, and I never really thought of that before until <laughs> you brought yeah. the parallel up now. So, Well, and, you know, of course, there are, there are differences between them, and, you know, obviously. But, you know, De Lubach, for instance, you know, he says, we, we have this, by nature, we desire something that can only be fulfilled supernaturally. And that, you know, supernatural part would, you know, kind of raise red flags for Schleiermacher because, Right. You know, he's he's looking at this in terms of the system of nature. But this idea that uh, it's it's from the the utmost depths of who we are mm -hmm. that we have this, uh, you know, locus of encounter with God, I think, is, is a really interesting parallel. And the other sort of way that I've seen the, the Schleiermacherian torch uh, carried on in my own work uh, my more, more contemporary work is my engagement with the thought of Bernard Lonergan. With who? I'm sorry. Uh, who, uh, Bernard Lonergan. He was okay. a Canadian Jesuit. Um, he taught uh, at the Gregorianum and Boston College and, you know, uh, around. And um, I, I picked up some uh, Lonergan while I was uh, at, at Marquette. But Lonergan is also kind of taking an interior turn and, and looking at, you know, essentially what, what are we doing when we understand something? What do we do when we know why is doing that knowledge? What do we know when we do it? And so he's, he's sort of taking this interior turn. He's, he's looking inward, so to speak at, uh, the the mental operations by which we think and know and understand, and and from there he develops a uh, critically realistic epistemology, mm -hmm. um, and where I see the continuity between him and Schleiermacher is just as Schleiermacher takes that interior turn and wants us to attend to our own subjectivity in terms of understanding our relationship with God, uh, Lonergan is going to tell us that true objectivity is a matter of authentic subjectivity. Uh, so that um, when we responsibly engage in acts of experience and understanding and judgment and decision, uh, that that we we really can know uh, the real, uh, and that by appropriating ourselves as knowers, uh, as people who who experience and understand and judge and decide, um, that we have the basis for. Um, you know, all further developments of, in knowledge, um, because whatever, whatever content our knowledge winds up um, having is, is going to be grounded in those operations. Uh, and, and, and so it's a sort of continuation of, and almost a radicalization of, and I would say a critical refinement of the sort of turn to interiority that Schleiermacher was doing. Um, but perhaps with 
you know, a greater you know, like sense of epistemological realism. But anyway, I'm, I'm doing quite a bit with Lonergan too. And I, I see the, the lines of continuity. Oh yeah. Uh, between him and Schleiermacher too. So, mm-hmm. you know, subjectivity, um, isn't bad. Uh, in fact, uh, the only way we're going to know or decide anything is subjectively. The question is, do we know what we're doing when we do that? Right. And I guess that and that's always the common charge against uh, Schleiermacher is, is sub, well, yeah, and, and like you said, subjective, subjectivity itself is, is not a, not bad. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a, you can't be honest. You can't honestly talk about anything without a subjective uh, component. Um, and I know like sub, a lot of people rightfully argue like subjectivism is like a, like a different thing than that. Or whenever you have the ism in there, it means like a, perhaps an, a program or an ideology built out of it. But, and, and I do understandably see where some of those charges are laid at the feet of um, Schleiermacher. I do think later waves of scholarship or scholarship on him clarified points on that. Um, as far as um, he was not a, he was, he wasn't a foyer back, right? <laughs> you know, he was not, he didn't go to that. End. Uh, but um, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I do kind of find myself agreeing with Bart in some of his critiques. I think he kind of nitpicked uh, a little bit, uh, especially in his, uh, uh, his lectures. He did his 1923 lectures he did, but, um, but I, I do, I see, so I, you know, I can see where Bart identifies a, a problem here there with um okay um you know it where where is the the um i guess where 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 does the where's the realism in this <laughs> i guess mm-hmm. um right. so but uh but yeah i uh you know that's and i think schleiermacher will prove for uh, for i mean people like you people like me and and i imagine uh future theology students to um to be of interest and so and worth studying worth um worth understanding first off on his own in his own voice on his own right um before uh before we um dismiss him so yeah thank you uh gene this is a great talk um i really uh found i i was hoping we'd, we'd really get to your your uh, work on De Lubeck because I thought it'd be um, it, it'd be interesting to tie our other kind of Schleiermacher episodes. We spent a lot of time on him already, and I was hoping to kind of connect that with uh, other um, theological voices. So, but th- so thank you for that. Yeah, glad I was able to uh, to join you. This was a lot of fun. Um, always always happy to talk theology, and uh, I'm glad that my uh, Working in the the Delubach stuff was a welcome addition and not um, you know an alien intrusion. No, not at all. I mean, I don't think it was. I mean, it was it naturally fit into yeah. this greater discussion. And um, I mean, your work, the your work on Slamacher's ecclesiology. I know from the one article which I'll put a show note for. I don't know if there's anything else. Send me if there's anything else. Send it to me, and I'll put a show note on that. Any other work you may have done on it. I mean, that article in itself was was a good um i think it really um um what was it introduced uh the opportunity there is for further study on this um and i find and i use i use that article uh as a source in in one of my uh 
uh, writings for for uh, it was either a term paper or something. But as far as um, that, I did on Schleiermark's ecclesiology because, like you, I found that very interesting. So, so thank you for for sharing about it on this show. Sure thing. So, all right, Gene, thank you.